The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, so we are at this point in, uh, in the story of the Bible. We're, we're going through the, the whole narrative of Scripture. And we're, we're at this point in which God's people in the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel, uh, north and south, have, have split into two now. So there's, there's north and south. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so they split in two, and they've had a, a record of kings that have mostly been bad news. And then where we're at in the story today specifically is uh, the Assyrian Empire, which was the dominant empire in that part of the world around 722 B.C., uh, has, has conquered the northern part of the people of God uh, and, and have, have conquered them and, and taken over. On their, they're on the footstep of Judah, the southern part of the people of God. So that's, that's where we're at in our text for today. And, and so we get to this, and, and God sends his prophet Isaiah to speak to the people of Judah, to speak to the folks in the southern half of the kingdom, and, and this is what Isaiah says to them. Uh, if you look with me, verses 1 and 2, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I just want you to think about this with me for a second. All right, so so here's the people of God, and in relatively recent years, this is what's happened to them. They've seen their nation split in half, north and south. They've endured horrendous leadership for several years. And then most recently, they've seen their brothers to the north, the northern part of Israel, get conquered and attacked by the Assyrian Empire, which was one of the most brutal and oppressive empires out there. They would burn your cities to the ground, burn your homes to the ground, and then they sent 27,000 Israelites in exile across their empire. So you've got lives destroyed, families ripped apart. And right now, Judah sees that this empire is on their doorstep, that they are next in line for this to happen to. But these folks are waiting. They're saying, God, we know you'll deliver us. God, we know you'll care for us. We just want to hear a word from you. God, would you just speak to us? What are you going to do? How are you going to deliver us? And finally, Isaiah speaks. And they're like, oh God, what's your plan? What's your plan? And Isaiah speaks and he says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. What? Right? you got to imagine the folks in Judah are like, Listen, bro, we are going to be conquered. We are going to be crushed. And you're talking to us about some guy that's young that we don't want to look at? What does that have to do with anything? Why are you telling us this now, God? How is this helping us at all? What is the deal? And see, I think this is actually the same question a lot of people in our culture would ask about this text today, too. What is the point of this text? Why does it matter? See, I don't know if you picked up on it, but, but Isaiah 53, it's, it's a pretty popular passage, and it's pretty clearly about Jesus. And in particular, it's, it's about Jesus' death and resurrection uh, from the grave three days later. And in fact, I'd say Isaiah 53, it's, it's one of the peaks of Scripture, right? You know, all Scriptures God breathe, it's all great. But, but there's some parts that are just like, whoa, that's the one, right? And so Isaiah 53, it's the clearest picture of the gospel we have in the Old Testament. Uh, much of New Testament theology is really derived from this chapter. I mean, there are few pieces of literature in the entire history of the world that have had as profound an impact on humanity as this chapter in the Bible, as this chapter in Isaiah 53. And yet we still have to imagine that for those first hearers, they're saying, what is this about? What is the point of this? And I think in many ways our culture asks the same thing. Uh, here's what I mean. 
Uh, so, so when I was in seminary, I, I took a class uh, on, on the letters of, of St. Paul, um, Pauline Epistles and Acts, and, and one of our assignments was to, to write a paper uh, on what's called the New Perspective on Paul, really boring. And uh, anyways, and so like I went, I went, and I, so I got the assignment, and I, I went to my dorm room to, to begin research, to, to start studying the new perspective on Paul, and like a really diligent student, I went to the best place to do research, uh, YouTube, and um, you guys are so lucky to have me as your pastor, and so I, um, <laughs> well, I'm not, not doing it, well, we have this joke in seminary, what do you call a pastor who got C's? Pastor. Uh, so anyways, I, I didn't for the record, but anyways, moving along, um, and so, so, so I go on YouTube, type in New Perspective on Paul, up pops N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, probably the leading New Testament scholar in the world, and it's, and it's him talking about the atonement, which is the central doctrine in the Christian faith. It's this idea of, of God and man being reconciled through Jesus' death on the cross, and so it's this, this central article of our faith, and it's the leading New Testament scholar talking about it, and I looked, uh, which is always dangerous, at the comments below the video, and the top comment said this, and it gets us where today. All right, so, so in this video on YouTube, we have the world's leading New Testament scholar speaking about the atonement, massive doctrine this, this belief that has been talked about by philosophers and thinkers for ages, books upon books, have been written around. And underneath this video, the top comment, written by a 16-year-old kid, I looked him up, says, and it gets us where today. Now, I'm not picking on that kid because I think it's actually a fair question. I think it's a fair question. I think it's a question that a lot of people are asking. I mean, let's just look real quick at the last decade and a half in our country alone. Just look at that. We went from 9-11 to the Iraq War to Enron to Hurricane Katrina to the economic recession to Hurricane Sandy to the Newtown shootings to the Boston Marathon bombing to Ferguson, Missouri, most recently to Baltimore, Maryland, right? And that's just our country alone. I skipped over a whole bunch of stuff, didn't I? And that's just our country alone, let alone the constant barrage of images of violence and suffering around the world that we see every single day. And so I think in the midst of that chaos, we, like the people of Judah, we look for a word from God and say, what, what, what can we hold on to? And we look at Isaiah 53, and it talks about this ancient song of Jesus' death and resurrection, and we say, where does that get us today? How is that applying to the misery that I see around me right now? How do, how do I line those things up? Well, that's what I want to answer this morning. Okay, that's what we're going to dig to. I think Isaiah 53 shows us two truths about the human condition that really help us answer that question. Two truths in Isaiah 53. And so this is what we'll see. First of all, we'll see the truth about our condition. Who are we? What's going on? What's true about us as humans? Secondly, we're going to look at what, what I call the beautiful exchange. And after examining those two things, we're going to tease out some implications from that. All right? So that's what I'll outline today for those of you linear thinkers out there. All right? So truth of our condition, beautiful exchange, and then we'll tease out some implications. So here's the truth of our condition. If you look with me at verses 4 through 6, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right, so these verses are pretty incredible, right? So, so verse 4 
It's talking about Jesus, and it says he's borne our griefs and our sorrows. In other words, all the pain, all the suffering in the world has in some way landed on Jesus Christ. Every natural disaster, every abuse suffered, every unfortunate circumstance somehow lands on the back of Jesus. He somehow carries all the suffering of the world on his back. That's what this verse 4 is saying. And then in 5 and 6 it says not only are the sorrows of the world laid on his back, but it says the sins of the world are laid on his back. That he carries the sins of the world. So that means every lustful thought, every greedy heart, every arrogant posture, every cruel word, he takes on himself. He, he enters into that. He brings on all the sin of the world, all the sorrow of the world. And because of that, what this text says is that God's judgment falls on him. That he embodies all the sin, all the brokenness in the world, and God's judgment, he's righteous, he's just, he's holy, it falls on him. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to be a Christian to believe the first two parts of that. Okay, so let me just break this down. So there's two parts of this. One, it says, you will suffer. Second part says is, you're morally a mess, right? You don't have to be a Christian to believe that. I think there's very few people that would argue like, no, no one suffers, right? Come on, use your brain. And oh, no, everyone's really, no one sins, no one makes, makes mistakes. No, everyone, we, we all agree on that, right? That's just part of the human condition, that we suffer and we're a mess morally. It's just true. But, but what, what this offers us is a longing for that to change, or is, is a way for that to change. This connection to Jesus makes all the difference, okay? So here's what I mean. You don't have to journey with me for a little bit. Um, so I love Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy and The Walking Dead and Orange is the New Black and Game of Thrones, all right? We can talk about my piety later, but let me just, I love those shows, right? Uh, and because of that, I've been told by many people that I would love Dexter and House of Cards and Mad Men and Weeds and The Sopranos and the list could go on and on. And what do all of these shows have in common? What do the most successful TV shows in our culture have in common? The anti-hero. The anti-hero, man. We love the anti-hero. And you say, well, what's the anti-hero? Well, I think this writer puts it really well. The anti-hero is the protagonist who does not have the traditional qualities of the admirable leading man or woman. He or she lacks courage, kindness, and nobility, but most notably, moral goodness. It's a character wrought with flaws and demons, disregarding the normal societal processes for his or her own agenda. It's become a compelling phenomenon based on the concept that we are rooting for someone who is violating everything we've ever known as right. All right, so if we were to summarize this quote, what does it say? It says, we love the bad boy, right? We love the bad boy. We eat it up. We can't get enough of it. But why? Why do we love that so much? Well, I read two articles on it, one from a, a Christian point of view and one from a, uh, what I'll call a secular uh, point of view. And guess what? Their initial assessments are nearly identical. Their initial assessments are nearly identical. They say both the Christian and non-Christian say, hey, the reason we love the anti-hero is because he's real, because she's real, because in the anti-hero we see ourselves we see our flaws. We don't just see some morally perfect character that we're never going to live up to. We see them and say, oh yeah, I've done that before too. Oh yeah, I get that. That makes sense to me. Oh yeah, I can relate to that, right? We see someone that we can relate to. We relate to the darkness of the anti-hero. And so both articles say this. And then the secular article just kind of ends. But the article I read about this Christian, it, it, it continues. And I think this, 
this last paragraph is key if we're going to see how Isaiah 53 fits into our lives today. Look at it with me. It's really long. But is this really what's behind our love of these stories? Are we tuning in just to see a weekly reflection of our own brokenness? I don't think so. I think against the depressing backdrop of history, amidst the disappointing reality of our mediocre lives and flawed humanity, we long to see truth. I think we tune in week after week in the hope of seeing our cast of characters eventually turn it around through some kind of redemptive act. Redemption or consequence, one way or another, I don't think we really want to see evil succeed. Why? Because we see ourselves in the anti-hero. And we don't want to be spectators to our own downward spiral of demise. We want to see truth prevail and love conquer hate. Seeing this affirms the deep sense of justice that all of us have in our hearts. Evil will not go unpunished. And no one is too far gone out of redemption's reach. I love that paragraph. Because see, listen, everyone knows there's suffering and evil in the world. Piece of cake, right? And we see it in the world and we see it in ourselves. And we, we long for that to meet justice. We long for that to end. And we long for, for, for things to work out. But here's the thing. Everyone sees that. But if without Jesus, you're just sort of stuck with that longing. But see, in Isaiah 53, it says, no, 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 no. That longing is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, of us all, the judgment for all our sins and all the sins of the world and for every anti-hero that ever existed fell on Jesus on the cross. Now get that. This means that judgment has been met. Because of that, redemption is possible. And so by his wounds, we are healed. And so this means suffering in this world isn't meaningless. Because it's through suffering that God redeemed us in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' suffering that led to his resurrection. Do you get that? You guys tracking with me? Like, like we look at suffering and even the world and we say, something has got to be done about this. And Isaiah 53 says, something has been done about it. And it happened to Jesus. God's suffering servant, Jesus Christ, entered into the world and on the cross, he entered into solidarity with the darkest parts of human existence so that all judgment would fall on him. All suffering would fall on him. And because of his resurrection, Easter morning, we have the hope of redemption. And someone says, that's all well and good, Pastor. Very good, very good. But it seems a bit abstract, right? Like, so, so somehow Jesus' death and resurrection, this one event in history, somehow links all of human evil and all of human suffering into this one moment, and, and, and Jesus pays the price for all that. But how does that connect with me personally? How does that really hit me as an individual? So glad you asked. The beautiful exchange. Look with me at verses 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the, their iniquities. 
All right, so first part of Isaiah 53, which we, we dug into, says that, that Jesus will bear the sins of the world. He'll bear all the brokenness of the sins. He will take your sin. He'll take our sins onto himself. But then, did you catch this? The end of verse 11 here, it says, My servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So he's the righteous one, my servant. So what, this, is what, this is what it's saying. He takes the sin of the world, and he gives his righteousness. He gives his perfection. He gives his relationship with God. Someone says, okay, I, I, I get that, but like, how does that work? Like, like, how do his death and resurrection actually cover over my sin? How does that affect me? How does that, that come to my level? All right, here's how. Uh, we live in what I think most anthropologists would call probably the most hyper-individualistic culture in the history of the world. Not saying good or bad, I'm just saying that's just the reality of things, right? It's just true. If someone, uh, you know, we're pretty clear, people's individual choices are their choices. So if someone commits a crime, they are punished for it. The individual's punished for it. Not their family, not their associates, not their friends, not people they're in solidarity with, just them, right? Unless you commit the crime, you don't do the time. Uh, conversely, if someone does something really, really great, they're the one that's praised, they're the one that's given honor, the individual who succeeded. And yes, I know Kevin Durant thanked his mom a year ago, all right, but, but her name's not on the MVP trophy, right? You don't even know her name, right? Still him, right? So that's, that's what we do. For better or for worse, that's just how our culture is. But what we need to understand is that most cultures in most times and in most places had a much more balanced view of individual and corporate responsibility, of individual and corporate responsibility. And, and that's why there's stories in Scripture of, of some guy committing a crime. You can, you can read them if you want. Of Some guy committing a crime, and his entire family gets punished. And we read those Americans like, what is the deal with that? Well, the, the sin of the one affects the whole. Ah, but in the same way, the success of the one affects the whole. And so you see throughout the ancient world, Man, if, if an individual succeeds, it's not just them that succeeds. It's their family. It's their tribe. It's anyone connected with them is elevated. Those he's in solidarity with are elevated. The record of the one is the record of the whole. What's my point? In Isaiah 53, what we see is Jesus puts himself in solidarity with the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity. He says, hey, I'm stepping in here with you guys in the mess in the mud, in the blood, where you guys are just the most broken and sinful people. I'm stepping into the midst of that. But because he's perfect, because he's righteous, anyone who puts themselves in solidarity with him, that is, if you trust in him, if you put your faith in him, if you say, I'm with you, Jesus, you get his record now. He takes your record and you get his. Simply put, Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, what you haven't done, whatever it is, you put yourself in solidarity with Jesus Christ, you get his record. It's not your morally flawed record standing before God, it's his perfect record standing before God. It's not your inability to do the right things that God sees, no, no, no. It's Jesus' perfect ability. He takes your rebellious relationship with God and gives you his perfect relationship with God. Man, like this is a beautiful exchange. It's a really good deal for us. It's a really good deal for us. It's a beautiful exchange. Your sin for his perfection. So because of this exchange, when God looks at you, it's, it's as if he's looking at you with the from eternity, never-ending love that he looks at his own son, Jesus Christ, with. 
That's yours now. It's a beautiful exchange, friends. It's a beautiful exchange. All right. You survived the nuanced theology lesson on substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness. Uh, by the way, that is what it was, so take test later. Um, so let me draw out a few implications on that for us today. Uh, we're going to do that. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, so I want to just focus on that last line here. It says, uh, makes intercession for the transgressors. It says, all right, so Jesus pours out himself for the many, and then he makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, the, the original Hebrew uh, is a, a present participle form, right? And so the, the most literal way to translate that is he is making intercession for the, for the transgressing ones. He is making intercession for the transgressing ones. Now, do you hear what that's actually saying? It's a continuous action. He's constantly doing it. Like, like right now, he's making intercession for the transgressing ones, for you and for me. That to this day, he remains making intercession for us. Here's why that matters. It means this side of eternity, a Christian, one who has put their trust in Jesus, one who's put themselves in solidarity with Jesus, has absolutely zero room for pride and moral superiority. Because Jesus is still making, uh, he's still making intercession for your transgressions. He's still up there doing it. He's still forgiving your sins. It's still happening. It's not like I got saved by Jesus and all of a sudden I'm doing all the right things all the time. It doesn't work that way. He's still interceding for you to the day you die or till he comes back. And that should humble us. So let's just think about how that humility would affect us in light of recent events. Let's look at Baltimore. Listen, we've seen Isaiah 53. We know there's sin in the world. And so as Christians, it's okay to call things that are sin, sins. And we can say it's wrong to hurt people and damage property just because you're mad. It's wrong. We can say that. We can also say because sin has permeated our world so thoroughly we don't have to pretend like systemic injustice and oppression don't exist. We can say those things are wrong too. But here's the deal. And you may lean one way or another on those things. Fine. But because we know that Jesus put himself in solidarity with the darkest parts of humanity. And that includes your sin. That includes your mistakes. This means we can, and that he's interceding for you on your behalf to this day. This means you can approach a situation like this, a terrible situation like this, with patience and with grace. Right? See, we can call sin, sin, but we can't ever elevate ourselves above it. Can't ever elevate ourselves above it. It's never them over there, those animals, those pigs. That wouldn't come out of a Christian's mouth. Wouldn't happen. Because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, yours and mine and everyone in Baltimore's. Jesus entered into our darkness. And so this means that in a difficult situation like this, the Christian can, as James 1 puts it, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. 
Let me tease out one more implication. Hot topic. We've talked about how Isaiah 53 enables us to face personal and systemic sin with grace and humility. But what about suffering? What about suffering? What about Nepal, right? Last I checked, uh, 6,300, over 6,300 people have died from this earthquake. What do we do with that? What does Isaiah 53 say about that? Well, it really doesn't offer us an apologetic for pain and suffering. But what we see is that in Jesus, we have a God who knows pain and suffering. He's familiar with it. He's entered into it. And so that means we don't suffer it alone. He is a man of sorrows. Here's why that matters. So, so Adam and I, where'd you go, Adam? Pagan. All right. There he is. Okay. Uh, so, so Adam and I were, uh, were at a church planning conference in Florida this past week. And uh, the last speaker we saw there was this guy um, from India. He's a, a pastor out there. And he's done some incredible things, uh, like literally planted thousands of churches and, and seen hundreds of thousands of people uh, come to faith in Jesus. And it's just a, a really inspiring stuff. But I was most struck by this, this last story he told us. And, and he said he's got a friend who's a, a pastor in Nepal in Kathmandu. And he spoke on the phone with him just this past Thursday. And he called him up and he said, hey, how's, how's it going over there? And uh, the pastor said, oh, it is, it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. He says, we've lost loved ones. Everyone has. And neighbors and friends. And our, our homes are destroyed. And we're still pulling people from the rubble. Then he goes, but Jesus is Lord. And he said, and more and more people are coming to know him in the midst of this terrible event. So listen, we can't give a perfect answer to such an awful tragedy. But what we see in Isaiah 53 is that we have a God who can empathize with us in the midst of that. We have a God who enters into our suffering. That in Jesus Christ, he's entered into your suffering. And so that's my prayer for you all this week. You've got heavy things going on in your life, some suffering going on in your life, sickness, whatever it is. Know that you're, you're not doing that alone, but that Jesus has entered into that with you. He is the one who suffers with you. Or maybe you're just bogged down by sin and guilt and you're beating yourself up. Know that, that because of Jesus, there's a beautiful exchange. He takes your sin and gives you his righteousness. Like right now, he is interceding for you right now, now. Nothing's changing that. And so let's look to him this week, our suffering servant. Please pray with me. Dear God, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the people that you've brought together this morning. God, we uh, study your word and we try to learn from it and we try to apply it to our lives. And our world is just so complex and interconnected and it's sometimes hard to do that. But Lord, I pray that your gospel would sink in so deep in our lives. That's just a natural reflex for us to engage this whole world inspired by the Spirit in light of your love. I pray we'd approach things with, with humility and grace. I pray the gospel would sink so deep into our lives that we would know we're never alone whatever we're going through. Lord God, thank you for sending our suffering servant, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.